feel free to take a seat. If you missed the first welcome, massive welcome. Great to, to have you here. It's pretty hot up here and I'm feeling a little bit faint. So if I fall over, it isn't because I'm being slain in the spirit. So don't pray more, Lord. Someone slap me around the face lovingly, of course, and give me some water. That would be, that would be brilliant. Um, I, I want to kick off this weekend by tackling what I believe is one of the biggies, big questions of following Jesus. And it's simply this. How can we experience the fullness of life that's available in Christ Jesus? How can you and I, experience the fullness of life that's available in Christ Jesus. Because many of us in the room will know verses like John 10 verse 10, where Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. And that kind of statement raises some pretty big questions. Two of the big ones that come to mind is firstly, well, what does that fullness even look like? And secondly, how do we get hold of it? So what does this fullness look like? Well, if you read the gospel narratives, you get a picture of abundant living. And it involves living with a sense of purpose, having a cause that drives your life and brings definition to your life. It means living with a sense of security. It means being drafted into a family. If you look at the disciples in this incredible community on a mission together, it looks like knowing that you're loved and having a peace with that. It looks like living with a sense of celebration and party. I mean, how many parties did Jesus go to? And the answer is enough to be accused of being a, a drunkard. So it's this sense of celebration, this sense of fullness, but it, it isn't a life devoid of pain and suffering. And Just hearing some of Luke talk about the last year for him, we know that this life's going to involve pain. And if you read the gospel narratives, you know, Jesus experienced persecution and rejection and failure and disappointments. Yet even in the midst of all of that, with Jesus and his followers, you see this sense of peace, this sense of purpose, and this sense of fullness. But if we were to go around the room um, as we begin this weekend and ask people, well, how full is your life right now? You know, how much fullness are you experiencing? My hunch would be that most of us, myself included, would say we fall way short of that vision of fullness of life. Which leads then to the second question, well, how can we grab hold of this fullness? If Jesus has done everything necessary for us to experience fullness of life, how do we grab hold of it? And I want to try and answer that question by looking at the Exodus narrative. So I'm not going to read massive chunks of the story in the book of Exodus, but I want to recap the story with you because many of you will be familiar with it. And it starts with God encountering this guy called Moses. Um, and basically, the conversation begins with God saying to Moses, hey, I've heard the cries of my people, the nation of Israel. They're oppressed in this Egyptian empire. They're being downtrodden, beaten and abused, and they're crying out for help. And I've, I've heard the cries of the people, Moses, and I want to liberate them, and I want to use you in the process. And, and Moses says, well, I'm sure there's better people you could use. If you want someone to go to Pharaoh with this message that you're to set God's people free so that they can worship him. Well, you need to find someone who's a born leader, a natural communicator. And I've got a stutter. I'm not really the best candidate for the role. Have you thought about my brother Aaron or, or maybe someone else? And God says, no, I, I want you, Moses. I want to use you. And they, they have this big debate and argument. God eventually wins. He tends to do that. And, and Moses eventually goes to Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, look, I encountered God. He gave me this message. It goes something like this. You're to set the Israelites free so that they can worship Yahweh God. How, how about it? And Pharaoh says, yeah, that's never going to happen. Never going to happen. And this battle commences. 
And it's an epic battle. It involves ten plagues. And then you have this climactic moment, you know, the parting of the Red Sea. Many of us will know this story well. As they're they're beginning to to walk out of Egypt, but they get to the mass of water. And they're panicking because the Egyptian army, the most powerful army on the planet at that time, are bearing down on them. And they're all looking to Moses. And Moses is like, ah! And he raises his staff over the waters. And the waters part. And the nation of Israel walk through on dry land. And when they get to the other side, the Egyptian army that followed them into the the waters, eventually the waves come crashing in and wipe out the most powerful army on the planet. And they are on the other side of the waters. And after 400 years of slavery and oppression, they are finally free. Now, we read these texts and we're like, oh, that sounds fun. That sounds quite cool. But just think about that. Try and emotionally engage with the story. 400 years of slavery. We're talking generational slavery. We're talking your parents were slaves. Your grandparents were slaves. Your great-grandparents were slaves. Your great-great-grandparents were slaves. So on and so forth. It's all you've ever known. And after 400 years of oppression, you are finally free. And imagine the party on the other side of the water. The the high fives, the chest bumping. like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. So let let me just try and summarise some of this story on the iPad, um, because that's the cool thing to do these days. Um, So it goes something like this. They journey out of Egypt. And I know you can't read my writing, but just pretend you can. So they journey out of Egypt. They then pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Just an incredible moment in the narrative. They then begin their journey through the desert. And then they hit another climactic moment where Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God. And this is the kind of moment where God says to Moses, now that you're free, let's have a conversation about the way forward. I've liberated you by grace, not because of your good works, pure grace. But now I'm choosing you as a nation to be my people. I'll be your God. You'll be my treasured possession. And I'm the creator, the source of life. Life flows from me. And if you stay really close to me, my life will flow to you and you will flourish as a nation. You will prosper you will live life fully and the way you're going to stay connected to me in this covenant relationship is by obeying the Torah you know the ten commandments the Jewish law the law was given as a gift to the people they were already liberated and here's like a little present here's how you stay connected to God because when you're connected you're going to flourish and know fullness of life and the Jewish people, they loved the Torah. They loved the Ten Commandments. It wasn't a burden that they had to carry. It was a gift. It was a pathway to blessing and to human flourishing. And if you know the story, it, it continues. Things go a little bit wrong. They engage in idolatry, but God's so gracious. He gives them a second chance. They continue their journey through the desert. And God miraculously provides bread from heaven to sustain them on the way. And eventually, under the leadership of Joshua, they arrive at the promised land. It's just the most incredible story of liberation. Now, a huge amount takes place between arriving in the promised land and the arrival of Jesus in the first century. Let me summarise it really briefly. So they arrive in the promised land and they flourish. Why? Because they're connected to God. And they build up Jerusalem. They build the temple there where they can encounter God. They have some amazing kings, King David, King Solomon. It's a picture of human flourishing. But gradually, what happens? They disconnect from God. They break the Torah. They start 
worshipping the gods of the surrounding nations. And God always said, look, if you're connected to me, the source of life, then you will know fullness of life. But if you turn your back on me, walk away from me, you're walking away from life, which means you're going to embrace spiritual death. And that's exactly what happens in the story. And it looks like the Assyrians coming in to invade, followed by the Babylonians that come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple right at the heart of the Jewish community. And then they take off the Jews to be captives in in Babylon. Now, fast forward to the first century, the arrival of Jesus. So the people of Israel are back in their homeland, but most scholars would say they're still in a state of exile, of spiritual exile. In other words, they're not free to be the people they were created by God to be. Life sucked for Jews in the first century. Why? Well, here's a number of reasons. Firstly, the temple system, which was right at the heart of the community, had become corrupt. Secondly, they hadn't had a prophet speak to them for over 400 years. If you read the Old Testament narrative, there's a steady stream of prophets speaking and whispering God's heart to his people, but they haven't heard a prophet for 400 years. The voice of God has dried up on them. More than that, the Romans are putting a heavy tax system on the Jewish nation to try and crush their spirit. And it was doing a pretty good job. You know, the Egyptians, they were bad. The Babylonians weren't much better, but the Romans were incredible at oppressing the nations. And they were doing that to the Jewish community. So in the first century, the nation of Israel are crying out to God, you know how you liberated us from Egypt? Would you come and do it again? Come and reconnect us. We want to be reconciled with our Father so that the blessings of God could fall upon us. We want to flourish again because we believe you redeemed us to prosper. You redeemed us to flourish and we're not flourishing. So send a second Moses to lead a second Exodus so that we can be free, the nation you called us to be. Those are the cries of the nation of Israel in the first century. Now, one of the things I love about the gospel narratives, but particularly Matthew's gospel, is that it explains the ministry of Jesus in these terms here. This is the story that defines a whole nation. So when Matthew explains the mission of Jesus, he uses this language. So let me explain how. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to these passages, but I'm just going to race through. So the story of Jesus really begins in Matthew's gospel with his birth. Obviously, everyone's story begins at their birth. But if you know the story of the birth of Jesus, King Herod finds out that another king of the Jews has been born. And he's freaked out. He's threatened. He wants to get rid of this rival. So he issues a decree of ethnic cleansing. I want to kill off all Jewish boys under the age of two. Just kill them. And Mary and Joseph find out about this decree and they escape. You know, want to rescue their son so they escape to Egypt. So Matthew chapter 2, the ministry of Jesus begins with this simple verse where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. The mission of Jesus begins as he's called out of Egypt. That's Matthew chapter 2, right? Matthew chapter 3, just turn your page, is the story of Jesus passing through the waters of baptism. Now, a Jew reading this text is thinking, hang on a minute, Jesus is called out of Egypt and then he passes through the waters. That, that sounds a little bit like our story, right? Well, turn the page to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is led into the wilderness where he spends 40 days and 40 nights. So he's called out of Egypt, passes through the waters, journeys through the desert. A Jew is reading this thinking, this is our story. Like Jesus is fulfilling our story. We know the end of the story. Maybe Jesus is leading us towards fullness of life. 
But it gets better than that. Turn the page to Matthew chapter 5. We're told that Jesus ascends the mountain to give a new law. The Sermon on the Mount, right? And, And what does that teaching look like? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are the meek. And blessed are those that mourn. And blessed are the persecuted. In other words, he's announcing blessing. What was the Torah all about? The Jewish law, it was a pathway to flourishing, a pathway to blessing, a way of staying connected to God. And now Jesus is saying there's a new way of knowing human flourishing in its relationship with me. So he comes out of Egypt, passes through the waters, journeys through the desert, ascends the mountain to give the law. And if you carry on reading in Matthew's gospel, you're going to get some really cool stories of Jesus providing bread from heaven. Where with someone's packed lunch, he feeds 5,000 people. Now, anyone reading the story that knows their Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, is thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is a second Moses leading a second Exodus. He's liberating his people. And that's what the death and resurrection of Jesus are all about. At his death, an old humanity dies. And at his resurrection, a new humanity emerges. The new creation breaks in upon us. And here's the most unbelievable thing. That here we are gathered where Robin Hood and his friends used to hang out. Like here, here we're gathered, but the spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is at work within us right now. Bringing about a new creation. Liberating us and bringing us fullness of life. I just love how Matthew tells the story of, of Jesus. So if Jesus has done everything necessary to lead us towards the promised land, to lead us towards fullness of life, then the question remains, well, how come most of us, definitely me, how come I'm not experiencing life in all its fullness? How come I fall way short of this vision of what I believe is available through relationship with Christ? And I just want to throw out some thoughts of how I believe we could grab hold of more of this fullness. Some thoughts from this Exodus story. And I'll I'll put them up on the screen and then I'll unpack them one by one. Um, So it starts with these three points then. We need to rediscover God's power. If we want to experience more of this fullness, we need to rediscover God's power. He's mighty and strong to save. do Do we actually believe that? Like, Do we lean on that truth? Or is it just a nice idea that none of us actually live out in our lives? We need to rediscover God's power. Secondly, we need to trust in God as provider. Learn the art of dependence. Finally, we need to passionately pursue his presence. So let's go through number one then. Rediscover God's power. You, You know the story of the ten plagues? In many ways, the story of the ten plagues is God showing off. It's God showing the nation of Israel how unbelievably powerful he is. And I don't know if you've read through the 10 plagues. They're unbelievably random. But to understand them, you need to know that in Egyptian culture, life was polytheistic. So unlike the Jews who were monotheistic, they believed in one God, Yahweh, who was sovereign over all. The Egyptians had loads of different gods. They had the God of the sun and the God of the moon, the God of the stars and the God of the seas and the God of the land and the God of the mountains and the God of your home and the God of your work life and the God of your sex life. There was basically a God who reigned over every sphere of life. And if you wanted to know blessing in the earthly realm, you had to somehow please the gods in the divine realm. So the people of Egypt would do loads of different things, making offerings and living in certain ways, trying to earn the favour of the gods of the divine realm so they could be happy and blessed in the earthly realm. 
Now, for the, the God of Israel to liberate the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he's going to have to go into battle and overcome the Egyptian gods that are controlling the nation of Israel. And that's what the plagues are about. God going into warfare against the Egyptian gods to wipe them out one by one. Let me give you some examples. And I'm borrowing this from a guy called Derek Morphew, a a South African scholar. He goes through the the plagues. I'll just give you some of the highlights because it's quite fun. So in the first plague, the River Nile, which was the sacred abode of the Egyptian god Happy, turned to blood, which symbolized the death of that god. So in the first plague, the River Nile, the water supply for the whole empire, the whole nation, turns to blood. Now that creates panic on different levels. Firstly, oh my goodness, how are we going to survive without our water supply? But more than that, by turning to blood, the God that reigns over this nation, it's been exterminated. And they're thinking, how are we going to survive if this God happy isn't reigning over us? But it gets worse. In another plague, the livestock begin to die. And in Egyptian thought, the bull was sacred to Apis, cows to Isis, and rams to Ammon. So three more Egyptian gods just wiped out. Think about it. This is more than like our food supply. Like our water supply is gone, but our food supply. Like how are we going to eat steaks and like lamb rogan josh, which isn't an Egyptian dish, I know, but really should have been. And they missed out big time. You know, how are we going to survive without the food supply? But it's way more than that because they're thinking, oh my goodness, our gods are being exterminated. Who's going to provide for us? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to reign over us? But it gets way worse than that. And because in the penultimate plague, the sun god Ra was blotted out. So not only are they thrown into darkness, there is now panic in the nation of Egypt. We can't see, but our gods are being destroyed. We're going to be doomed. What's what's happening? But it gets worse than that. Because in the final plague, Pharaoh's firstborn son dies. And in Egyptian belief, Pharaoh and his firstborn were thought of as divine beings, which was the basis of their authority. So the death of Pharaoh's firstborn represents not only the death of a deity, but the annihilation of his authority. So one by one, Yahweh God goes into battle with the Egyptian gods, destroys them so much so that the nation of Israel walk out of Egypt. Have you ever thought about that? This is the most powerful empire on the planet. And the nation of Israel don't have to lift a finger. Don't have to raise a spear or a sword. They walk out of Egypt and they plunder them as they go. We haven't even got to the Red Sea, the the parting of the waves, walking through on dry land, seeing the army completely annihilated. So when they get to the other side of the, the waters, they're thinking, oh my goodness, how powerful is Yahweh God? Like, have you seen how he wiped out the Egyptian gods? How he destroyed the most powerful army on the planet? How powerful is our God? That's what they were thinking. But if you just carry on a few chapters... Only a few chapters, they're beginning to grumble. Yeah, but is he powerful enough to provide for us in the desert? Hungry, it'd be nice to eat. Is he powerful enough to provide some food? Is he powerful enough to provide some water? Like, there's no water here. And is he powerful enough to go overcome the giants in the land? They're beginning to doubt God's power to liberate them and provide for them. How, how random is that after all they've seen? And my hunch is that in a room like this, There'll be many of you that believe with your mind. Yeah, God's powerful. I believe in a a God that rose from the grave. Yeah, he's powerful. But I'm just not sure he's powerful enough to save me from depression. 
Just not sure he's powerful enough to liberate me from my addiction. I'm just not sure he's powerful enough to provide for my family. I'm just not sure he's powerful enough to heal some of the wounds I have from my upbringing and my childhood. Yeah, powerful enough probably for the person on your left. Most of you will be thinking, yeah, and probably powerful enough for the person on your right, but not powerful enough for me. And you need to know that Yahweh God is powerful enough for you to liberate you and to lead you towards fullness of life. So how is his power revealed? N.T. Wright, just an incredible New Testament scholar, makes an interesting point. He says there's two journeys of liberation going on in the Exodus narrative. The first journey is the journey out of Egypt, getting out of Egypt. The second journey is getting Egypt out of them. In other words, getting out of slavery and then getting out of the mindset of slavery. Because when you've been slaves for over 400 years as a nation, it's all you've ever known. You have the victim mindset. So how does God liberate people from a victim mindset? How does he liberate you and I from a victim mindset? And to kind of try and answer that question, I want to move from theology to psychology. So stay with me. Hopefully it'll be worth it. Don't tell me if it wasn't. Um, but I'm going to try and do some psychology with you. I want to tell you about a guy called Albert Ellis, who um, was a leading thinker in the 50s onwards, uh, 1950s, an American therapist who was the kind of key thinker behind the rational emotive behavioural therapy movement. Also one of the leading thinkers behind CBT. Anyone heard of CBT? Cognitive behavioural therapy. So a number of you have. His central thesis was that if you want to understand someone's behaviour, you need to understand the core beliefs that drive that behaviour. And if you want to understand the core beliefs that drive the behaviour, you need to know what happened to them in their upbringing and education, in their life so far. Which is why when you go for therapy, and I've been for therapy, found it incredibly helpful, often the first question will be, like, tell me your story. Like, just tell me what's happened to you growing up at school, in your workplace. And gradually as you tell your story, your therapist counts as thinking, okay, this happened to you, maybe it shaped these beliefs. Some of them will be rational, a lot of them will be irrational. And now those beliefs shape this behaviour. So an example would be like maybe as a kid, your mum and dad separated and eventually got divorced and you were too young to process that pain. So you internalized it and you came up with this irrational belief that it was your fault. That maybe as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, you were naughty. You were a naughty boy or naughty girl and that put pressure on your mum and dad's marriage and they couldn't cope. And because of you, their marriage eventually fell apart. And therefore your behaviour is you don't want to get too involved in things because when you get involved, things go horribly wrong and you develop this incredible sense of timidity. And I see that kind of story played out so many times. Here would be another example that maybe, you know, the first time you fell in love, you know, that you just gave your heart fully, let's say. Just you loved this girl or you loved that guy, but you got totally broken hearted. You just got screwed over in this relationship. Maybe they went off with your best friend or whatever and it just broke your heart. And you developed this belief that you cannot give your heart to anyone. Because if you give your heart to someone and you get screwed over again, then you'll never ever recover. So what you end up doing is just holding everyone at a distance. Because you don't want to give your heart, you don't want to trust people again. Because if your heart gets broken, you'll never actually come back. You'll never recover. So you're holding at arm's length the very love that will actually heal you. 
and in the, the church that B and I lead in London. You know, I get to hang out with lots of people in their 20s and 30s. I hear that story so much. I can't trust. I can't trust this person. I can't trust that person. My heart will get broken. It's like, it's a story that's robbing them of fullness of life. So here's how Albert Ellis described this thing. So he's, he came up with this thing called the ABC of CBT. Um, it goes something like this. So you have your activating event here. Again, I'm fully aware that you can't read that. Just trust me. It says activating event. Um, and then you have the beliefs that flow from the activating event. And then you have consequences in behavior. And this is the ABC of CBT. Here's an example from my life. So when I was at um, university, I remember doing a module in psychology, studying some of this stuff. And one of the lecturers said in a, in a workshop, hey, does anyone have a phobia that we can work through just as a case study? And no one volunteered. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. So I put my hand in the air and I'm like, I've got a phobia of rats. And everyone was like, yeah grown man scared of rats and and I'm telling you about this partly because it's fairly amusing but also because I'm through the worst of it so I can tell you without it activating any stuff within me but just so you know how bad it got for me as a kid so when I was around let's say 13 14 it's no exaggeration to say every night before bed I would hunt around my room I'd look under my bed I'd look in the wardrobes in the cupboards I'd literally do maybe a 20 minute sweep of the room and only when I was convinced there was no rat in the room would I eventually go to bed and when I was really stressed so during my GCSEs had it again in my A levels had it again in my finals at university it would keep me awake at night and I just convinced myself there's a rat nearby and and my friends who knew about this phobia would send you know encouraging text messages to say you know you're never more than five meters from a rat like and you'd be like there's there's one two meters away I can sense it it's near me you know and people would send text messages of photos of the the world's largest rat which is like a dog and you know so it, it would create this panic and and if you really listen you can convince yourself I can hear scurrying so I'd be awake, I remember during my finals at university, I'd wrap myself in my duvet, so literally no rodent could get in. The only access point was my face, which like totally freaked me out. Um, and it was just like, I, I was convinced that they were out to get me, and I was trying to sleep because I had big exams, and, and this thing was robbing me of, of fullness of life. So he, this lecturer was like, so let's just do the ABC. What's the activating event? Is there anything you can remember? So I just start thinking about it. And this, this memory comes to mind when I was about three years old. I had a hamster and the hamster bit me. Now, that's not the activating event, by the way. That's just a warm-up to the activating event. That hamster eventually died. Don't know how, don't really care. Um, <laughs> but... But then the hamster was replaced with another hamster called Toffee. So I'm about five or six now, and I just have this vivid memory of waking up one night about four in the morning with this scratching on my chest. It's just like this moving around. And I just wake up, and I see these like black beady eyes just looking at me, like staring into my soul. And I'm like, ah! And I just whack this thing off my chest. And I like turn the lights on. I'm in, I'm in a state of panic, and I'm looking around the room. What was that? And I eventually find my hamster, like Toffee, just limping back towards the cage. I'm, I'm furious. I pick it up, put it back in the cage, lock the cage, and I starve it to death. That's a joke, by the way. I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. 
I sometimes wish I had done that. That might have helped with some of the trauma that later came. But no, I didn't do that. But I fell out of love with Toffee. That was like a breaking moment in the relationship. Um, so there's this activating event. And, and it developed some really crazy irrational beliefs. The hamsters, and, and I just generously extended that to the rodent family, to mice and rats. They, they don't like me. And they're out to get me. And you, you know this idea that if you're scared of an animal, then you're vulnerable. If they can smell fear. As if they can smell fear. But if they smell fear, they'll exploit that. And I was like, yep, yeah, I'm fearful. They're, they're going to harm me. And I just developed these irrational beliefs. And these irrational beliefs are keeping me awake at night. And they're robbing me of life. So what, what does healing look like in this model? And um, what Albert Ellis would say is that you've essentially got to deconstruct your irrational beliefs. You've got to deconstruct the irrational beliefs. So you'd go with a therapist, and the therapist would go through some of the irrational beliefs and say, Pete, like, how big is a rat? And I'd be like, well, the photo my friend sent me was like about that, a normal rat. Like, well, about that. How big are you? And I'm like, five foot ten and a half, maybe five foot eight. Um, you know... <laughs> Like how big? Are you? So how many times bigger than the rat are you? And I'm like, well, I don't know, 40, 50? So do you think that the rat would be more scared of you than you are of it? And I'm like, yeah, probably. And like, what's worst case scenario? What harm can a rat actually do? And I'm like, do you know about the plague that almost ruined this country? And he's like, forget that. But like, what harm? And you're like, yeah, well, it couldn't really do much harm. And then you deconstruct these irrational beliefs and you replace them with with rational beliefs. And, and that's the pathway to healing through CBT. And CBT, by the way, I think is amazing. I've been through therapy on other issues and used CBT. Found it incredibly helpful. But here's the amazing news of the gospel. Here's how healing happens in and through Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up and say to people, hey, you need to deconstruct some of your irrational beliefs. No, he provides a new activating event. And the new activating event is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, and as that becomes the activating event that shapes your beliefs, you begin to think, oh my goodness, if Jesus lived for me and died for me and rose for me, he might actually like me. More than that, he must love me and he must have a plan for my life. He must want to use me to extend his kingdom in the world. And as you begin to live out those beliefs, it shapes how you live life. That's how healing happens in and through Christ Jesus. So the question becomes, how do you let that be the activating event? How do you live in that story? Because there's plenty of other stories you could live in and probably do live in. Like, I'll, I'll never be happy until I'm married. I mean, how many people live in that story? So you're delaying happiness until you get married, if you get married. Or I'll never be fulfilled until I'm successful in my career. So you're delaying fulfillment until you're successful, if you're successful in your career. You know, or, or my life will never amount to much. And there's these patterns of thinking, and these stories that we live in that aren't stories that lead towards fullness of life. So how do you live in this story, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus? And a couple of quick points, three quick points. Um, here they are then. You need to indwell the biblical narrative. That's the first thing. You need to indwell the biblical narrative. You know, one of the tragedies of our generation is not that we just don't know the Bible is we hardly read it. We hardly read the Bible. We're not immersing ourselves in the story that's meant to shape who we are and how we live. 
You know, the, the narrative of the Bible is a journey from slavery towards the promised land. You know how the narrative ends. The story ends, Revelation 21. Heaven comes down and everything's restored and made new. And in this vision, John says, wow, there's, there's no death, there's no grief, there's no crying, there's no pain. In other words, it's a picture of fullness of life. And the story's moving towards that. And as you immerse yourself in that story, you're swept along to the end goal of the story, which is living life fully. Yet many of us don't live within that story. We're not being shaped by that story. If we want to be agents of bringing life and kingdom transformation to the UK, to our universities, our workplaces, our schools, our churches, we've got to be immersed in the narrative. Got to become people of the word. Secondly, we need to belong to a community that's shaped by the story. In other words, you've got to throw yourself into the local church. One of the things I hear quite a lot amongst 20s and 30s in the UK, and I, I heard it less maybe about 10 years ago, when, um, when people used to say things like, our church for me is like, it's just having a beer with a friend that follows Jesus. So I don't really want to go to church. It doesn't really do much for me. I just, you know, having a beer with a mate and talking about God stuff, that's church for me. And part of me understands what they're saying. And part of me wants to say, yeah, that is an important part of discipleship, processing faith with friends. Definitely over beer, that always helps. But that isn't church. That isn't a full expression of church. Church is a whole community centered around the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And they're being shaped by the story. They're shaping each other in the process. That's what church is. And we need to be a people that are passionate about local church. Here's the other thing people say to me sometimes about church. Oh, Pete, the, the problem with church is if I get too involved in church, I'll just get domesticated. I, I, I'll just become tame. Like, Pete, I want my life to count for a cause way bigger than myself. I want to be an adventurer. I, I want to make a difference. And if I hang out in church too much, I'll just become tame. And I'll really enjoy bands like Keen and Embrace, my two favourite bands, by the way. Um, and, and I'll end up wearing oversized sweaters. And I'll end up wearing sandals with white socks. And I'll end up being a bit more like you, Pete. If, you know, they don't actually say that because I'd hit them. But, but they're essentially saying, I'm, I'm worried that I'll get tamed. I get too involved in church and my response is always the same which is you know there's a greater danger than being domesticated and tamed by the church it's being domesticated by the world and that's what's happening to you right now if you follow Jesus who's described in the scripture as the lion of Judah lion like if you follow a lion you'll become more lion like you'll become more wild you'll become more adventurous you'll become more radical so why don't you throw yourself into the local church because at the center of the church is the Lion of Judah. That's how you live life radically. So we need to be a generation that's all in when it comes to local church. And finally, we need to be a people that hang out with the storyteller. Hebrews describes Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's one of the greatest privileges of our faith is that we get to hang out with the storyteller. And in doing so, we get changed. Secondly then, and I'm going to rattle through this, we've got to learn to trust in God as our provider. How do the nation of Israel get to the promised land? The short answer is God provides for them. Because they're in harsh territory, they're in the desert. They're going to need water, and God says to Moses, hey, Moses, strike that rock. Water! 
cool, a spring. That's amazing. That's a miracle. That's divine provision. And we're going to need some food. And God says, well, I'm going to send manna from heaven. And here's the deal of how manna is going to work. It will come down from heaven. There'll never be more than enough. There'll never be less than enough. There'll always be enough. What's the lesson behind that? Is God saying to his people, I want you to learn the art of dependence. Don't collect more than you'll need because there'll never be more than you'll need. You're going to have to trust me every step of the journey. If you want to get to the promised land, the place where you're going to prosper, you have to learn how to trust me. And when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he said, you have to pray like this. Pray to your father in heaven and say, give us today our daily bread. Like what we need now because we want to learn to trust in you. Not more than what you need, not like tomorrow's bread, but just give us what we need because we want to learn the art of dependence. And and I I really believe that we need to learn this as a a generation here in the UK. Like we we have so much. I was recently in Uganda and just seeing some of the incredible signs and wonders there. But then seeing the people pray. When they pray, give us today our daily bread, they, they actually mean it. Like, God, we've got no food. Would you, would you provide some bread now? And when they pray for sick people, it's not like, Lord, it'd be good if you heal, but no worries if not, because we've got the NHS and we've got a plan B and a plan C. They're like, please heal my daughter because she's dying. Please, God. And they're exercising incredible faith and they've learned the art of dependence. And if we want to see like kingdom growth, we need to learn to trust in God as our provider. And, and finally then, We need to passionately pursue God's presence. We need to passionately pursue his presence. How do they get to the promised land? God says there's going to be a fire, you know, during the night. There's going to be a cloud during the day. When it moves, you move. When it stops, you stop. When it moves, you move again. Keep following it because it's a manifestation of my presence. If you pursue my presence, you'll end up in the promised land. You know, and Jesus put it like this. He said, seek and you will find. If you seek me, my presence, you will find fullness of life. And I think many of us, myself included, we really want to find. Finding's fun. Like finding the every spiritual blessing that's available in Christ Jesus from Ephesians 1. Like finding's really fun. But many of us, like we just can't be asked to seek. Like on, honestly, you're, like, you're just you're busy. You've got like lots of things on. I want to find, but not really that keen on the seeking. And Jesus says, well, relationships don't work like that. You seek. And when you seek, you, you will find. I'll land with the story then. This is something that about six months ago, for a six-month period, it happened to me every single night. And it happened about four in the morning. Um, I'd wake up and I'd hear this really random voice and it went something like this. Daddy. Daddy. And initially I'd just ignore it because that's what loving parents do. I'm like, just ignore that. It's not right. It's four in the morning. Just ignore it. You're stronger than him. You're stronger. Like, Daddy. Daddy. And it it wasn't a panicked voice because then I'd have shot upstairs. It wasn't an alarmed voice, but it didn't quit. Like, Daddy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And eventually my wife would like kick me or elbow me. It's like, Benj is calling you. And I'd run upstairs and Benj, who was four at the time. And, I, and I was, as I got into his room, I was thinking, well, what's happening? Like, has his duvet fallen off the bed? And I had to put it back on. Has he fallen out of the bed? That happens. You know, has he wet the bed? 
That happens from time to time, hopefully less when you're an adult, but it, it happens. You know, and I was like, what's happened? And I'd get into his room and, and it would be nothing. And, and this is what he'd say. He'd be like, can you lie down with me? And I'd be like, okay. So I'd, I'd lie down next to him and I'd just sort of like wait. And after about five minutes, sometimes I'd drift off, but more often than not, I'd just like watch him. And after five minutes, he'd be like, you can go now. I'm like, it's four in the morning. Like, do you really need me for five minutes just to come and lie down next to you? And it would happen every single night for about six months. And um, I was exhausted for most of that six months. But I started asking, well, what's going on? Like, why does he want me like, to go and be with him for five minutes every night? And I was like, is it his imagination's kicking in? Because, you know, there comes an age where they begin to have nightmares and quite vivid dreams. You know, and that happened once or twice where I went in and he was like, Daddy, there's a monster. And I'm like, honestly, Ben, there isn't a monster, but I'll check. You know, so like, looked in the wardrobe, in the cupboard, under the bed. Like, there's no monsters. There's a couple of rats under the bed, but like, <laughs> there's, there's no monsters. And there's one time, kid you not, he said, Daddy, there's a fox in the house. And um, he'd been watching Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is an incredible movie. He's like, there's a fox in the house. And I said, Ben, apart from your mum, there's no fox in the house. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but I was like, what is it? Like, why every night? And you know the answers? Just wanted to be close to daddy. Just wanted to be close to daddy. And here's the thing. And like, Benj doesn't know this, but I'll tell him when he's older. It's the best part of my day. Like every day, best part of my day. I just lie there next to him thinking, oh, I love you so much, Benj. I'll do anything for you. I didn't say any of this. It's four in the morning. I was incapable of speech, but like just being next to him, I, I was communicating that. And you know, I saw over the, those six months, his behavior begin to change as he became more secure. I think it was because he had that five minute time just close to daddy. And you know, as I was preparing for tonight, I just felt like God wanted to say to some of us here, you know, when you get to hang out with God, it's the best part of his day best part of his day sometimes it's not even five minutes sometimes it's two but when it happens he loves it and you need it he loves it but you need it because most of us we're so insecure I'm so insecure I run from insecure thought to insecure thought like did it go okay did they like me how was it a retreat to advance am I doing a good enough job at KXC and yet when I hang out with my father do you know what I hear him say it's like oh Pete I love you so much really proud of you you're my son whom I love with you, I'm, I'm well pleased. As I hang out in that voice, my security begins to develop. Confidence develops. You know, and if, if, if we want a journey towards fullness of life, we have to pursue the presence of God because it's in the presence of God we find fullness. That's when we know that we are loved and that changes everything. So why don't we stand together? We're going to end by just doing that. Inviting God's presence. Like, I really believe this, that God wants to liberate people over the course of this weekend. Like, I really mean that. Some of you might not have faith for it. I have faith for it. Some of you, it will be addictive patterns of behavior. Some of you, it will be 
other things, but, but God wants to liberate his people. The second part of the story that we'll get to is the liberated become the liberators. You know, free people, free other people. That as God leads us towards fullness of life, we lead others towards fullness of life. But right now, God wants to do business with us, to liberate us, to be involved in this story of redemption and the renewal of all things. So why don't we just open ourselves to that right now?